Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, Dr. Manjiri. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm very well. We've got this funny kind of American accent woman saying the recorded, what something like the recorded has started. It's a bit, it's a bit irritating, I must say. But I mean, you know, it's all about. I guess permission and and sort of people being informed and and you know we were we were having a discussion before we started today about maybe people are being a bit too well informed about all sorts of things. Yeah, information is uh, is rampant, isn't it, in this day and age? Uh, it's getting the correct information that's the trouble, I think. Yeah, yeah, and you know this is where sort of we come in, I guess, is that you know, where they're trying to um, shuffle through all the different misinformation and try and give our patients, you know, the best information uh, and the most accurate information. But unfortunately, we are lone voices, you know, compared to, you know, a bigger voice out there, i.e. the media and, you know, more importantly, the social media, which is having such a massive uh, influence on our um, thought processes, emotions, psyches. I don't know what you, you know what you want to call it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, difficult to to sift out. I think for the average person, what's true and what isn't true. Um, everything looks the same on a Google search, doesn't it? Um, looks equally important. Um, and I guess as as medics, we are sort of more inclined to look at things like evidence and studies and sort of the science behind it. Um, but people are more about emotion. People are about what speaks to them and intuition and those kind of more basic feelings. So you have to kind of coat the science in something that people understand, um, make it relevant. So yeah, yeah that's always yeah. quite tricky. I think. Now you had a GP school, which is which, which sounds <clears throat> really sort of cool and and um, you know really sort of high up there in the uh, in, in in the sort of hierarchy, so to speak. Um, where does emotion sort of cut, come into training for, for GPs and sort of all, all, all these so-called uh, inverted commas soft skills? Oh, that's a, that's a good question, actually. I mean, pretty much general practice is about the soft skills. I mean, obviously there is science and there's differential diagnoses and there's spotting an ill patient quickly. Um, but actually a lot of what we do is, is reassure patients and communicate with them there's a little bit of counseling involved in it so pretty much what we do in GP training is is getting trainees um, to think about the softer skills um, of communicating with that person in front of you which is no different to communicating communicating with a friend or, or a colleague um, but obviously with the the added um, stress I guess of people being ill and and, and what that means to them and, and as we were talking about feelings of stress and anxiety that that brings to the consultation. So 
part of the GP school is is um, is is making sure the people that are training our GP trainees have the right skills to do that. Um, so emotion is a big part of it because I'm I'm a trainer and that's how I got into this job. And and being an educational supervisor or trainer, uh, you want to you have to love it. You have to enjoy. Uh, being with those trainees, teaching them skills, facilitating them, you know, getting them to enjoy general practice, I think. Um, so that's part of it. It's an emotional kind of um, sort of thing rather than it just being, oh, I'd like to teach them a few things about hypertension. It doesn't kind of quite work that way. Most of general practice is soft skills. But yeah, we all love communication skills. We're obsessed with them in general practice. And, and um, Teaching that, getting the trainees to get better and better as they go through is one of the things. So, yeah, part of the GP school, I think, is is getting people, more people into the fold to, to train, um, to become educators. Um, and a lot of people really enjoy education. And if they have good mentors, they're more likely to go into it themselves when they qualify. So it's sort of the cycle carries on. So that that's where the emotion comes into it but there's also the emotion of the trainees you know they're human beings as we all are and they bring whatever is going on in their lives into their day-to-day -day work it, there's, it's difficult to separate it out so we have to help our trainees support them um, you know offer occupational health services um, certainly over covid uh, extremely difficult for a lot of trainees you know having to be redeployed into specialities that they thought they had finished doing, um, seeing kind of a lot of death and illness really. Um, and also their own personal lives. They may have had things going on in their personal lives, people being unwell, um, families being unwell, uh, families being far away. Uh, we've got a lot of trainees who have come from countries abroad. Um, yeah, so supporting them, sort of pastoral care as well as sort of the educational care really. So yeah, emotion is, part and parcel of everything we do I think as doctors personally I mean is, is is this sort of more more explicit now whereas before it was more of an implicit you know way of you know delivering mentorship and and uh, apprenticeship has it become more explicit now yeah I, th I, I think it definitely has I mean and I, I, there were some maybe educators that were naturally doing that without sort of being told how to do it they were just sort of in that zone themselves However, now there's a lot of things that we um, offer both our trainees and our educators. Um, courses help with well-being, and we actually have a, a professional support uh, and well-being service um, as part of the deaneries that basically offer support to the trainees. Uh, so it's anything from career coaching, communication skills, um, sort of just coaching through difficult times in their lives. Um, and then also there's all the external support that's off, um, offered, things like practitioner health, stuff through the BMA. Um, and I think this generation are very clued up about um, uh, mental health and well-being and sort of what their, their boundaries are, um, which maybe my generation weren't as good at um, kind of setting the boundaries about where do you stop work, where do you start play, how do I stop myself from being overworked? I think we're all getting better at it, but I think this generation is definitely better at it because they've just had so much information about it right from day one. Um, and not to be afraid to say that I'm not coping or that actually this is enough and I need some help. And I think that's important, that, that old school mentality of work, 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 and don't say when things are kind of falling apart actually is hopefully going, I think. 
Um, and, Do you and think the stigma to... is is changing? Um, you know, beneficially. It's... It is. I mean, it's always a slow process, this this kind of stuff, isn't it? It's it's not a sudden change. It's a, a small stepwise change. And I think it is changing gradually. I mean, there's still some people that will say the old ways are the better ways. And I, and I think, you know, we can't we can't stay as we were. Things are constantly changing. Um, so I think we can learn from how this current generation separate work and life and how they keep their work-life balance um, and I think my generation could probably learn from that a little bit and, and, and be healthier with it so I think we all learn from each other um, and yeah definitely it's more explicit now in a lot of our training and in the curriculum um, we, we offer a lot more support I think um, yeah absolutely. And, uh, is, is there anything like from the old days that you miss or you think you know that should come back or you think to yourself we should bring this back in, you know, into our school. Oh, gosh, I think there are some things that have changed, which may not be for the better, but had to change because of circumstances. I mean, I don't know when you were training what, what happened, but when well, I was training, we did very long hours, but we had firms. So we stuck with the we had a group of people in the hospital that we knew really well. Um, and kind of they were your your kind of mentors, your buddies, um, and it ranged from your house officer, SHOs, all the way up to registrars and senior registrars and the consultant. And you all knew each other really well. You knew the patients really well because you you, you looked after them as teams. And there was a real sense of camaraderie. Um, and you'd go to work, and even though it was long hours, you knew people you knew were on call with you. Uh, you had that support, uh, which was a physical and a mental health support. And so even though you're working long hours, it felt like you were well supported during those long hours. So I think the feelings of going to work were different. I feel sometimes now there's a lot of shift work. People go in, they do their work, they come home. They don't know who they're working with on a day-to-day -day basis. The patient list changes. It's really fragmented. Um, and obviously some of that was the um, junior doctor's contract and the European working time directive, which obviously had to come in. But I don't know whether that somehow they could change that to so that you get that support from your work colleagues. I mean, we all know how important it is yeah. um, that our work colleagues are our teams. And when we go in, we know that we, you know, someone's having a bad day. We can all support each other. And certainly in my practice, that's how I feel. It's a fantastic team. It's a fantastic practice. We all muck in. Uh, if someone's having a very long surgery, we'll pick out things from their surgery that we we can bring or bring patients to see. You, you know we all at the end of the day we all go are you all here are you all okay who's got any patients left let's all let's take someone's patients and through the day so that's how we all get through it because we know if we're struggling someone will support us and I'm not sure that a lot of our trainees and junior doctors necessarily feel that way um so how can we get that feeling of camaraderie back without necessarily going back to doing you know four or five days on call without rest um I don't know, but that would be lovely. I think teams are important and people are important um, to work with. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the whole concepts around routine uh, is is absolutely important, particularly in, in, in very stressful situations and stressful work environments. And, you know, having, so to school, you know, uh, uh, we can call it a second family, uh, so to speak. Um, you know, within this sort of situation, you know, allows us to to go that extra mile and sort of do that sort of extra shift or see that extra patient or, you know, just um, 
push the boat out a bit more. Um, maybe it might come back in a in a you know in a more sort of uh, descriptive or controlled environment or something that can be experienced, so to speak. So you know, at least you know when they do become independent uh, practitioners or or you know the future leaders, they know that this actually does work and it and it and it has um helped us a lot so you know maybe we can inspire the next generation to think about these things yeah absolutely i think it's worth thinking about not throwing out the baby with the bathwater and thinking about the things that worked well but the things that need to change and try and amalgamate those so you make a better system um but it's very tricky i agree you know the nhs is a is a massive um kind of organization and so many um cogs in that wheel um how to make it all run smoothly and, and ensure everyone is well supported whilst still needing the service element of, you know, people need to be seen, patients need to be seen, uh, particularly over COVID. I think this is a real, going to be a real problem, something that, that kind of at every level of the NHS, people are going to be thinking, how do we, how do we move forward really from, from the last couple of years? Um, Isn't it just too big and, you know, just too old you know the system's too old it needs to you know essentially needs to break down into smaller functioning units yeah absolutely i think i mean gp practices i guess are not as big as trust so we do function as a smaller unit on the contract so uh i think practices can respond within themselves and the pcns now as they are uh more responsibly to 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 things that are thrown at them because they there are smaller units but there are still a lot of restrictions because of the way the NHS contract is set up. So, um, however, within a, a practice, there's a lot of flexibility um, and, and we can set up things how we may think is ideal for patients, for example. Um, so I think that's why, you know, the way GP set up works really well. And if we lose that and it becomes a bigger sort of um, corporate environment, we might lose that that ability to very quickly respond like they did with the vaccinations i mean it was so quick and very quickly we we're able to sort of set up covid vaccinations for all our patients and you know whilst carrying on delivering normal services you know and um, because we we're used to doing that we're used to be able to seeing what our patients need and how do we set that up for our patients within our locality uh the bigger you get the more wieldy things become um because it has to run through several layers of of bureaucracy and hierarchy before you get the say so so yeah, yeah how do we I think the, the plan is to go to more community-based services isn't it to allow that that little bit of flexibility to deliver what local populations need and I think that is the way forward um, but you're right the NHS is a very old organization when it was set up um, you know people didn't live till the age of 100 um, with multiple comorbidities and and we didn't have as many medicines as we have now and, and, and kind of evidence of using them. So, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. Something, a sea change. And what that is, who we yeah, could... Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, it does, it does need a lot of courage from, from leadership to actually step up and say, well, this isn't working. And I think this uh, particular model, which I'm doing in my local area, is actually working much more better than, you know, uh, top-down and sort of you know heavy down uh, sort of structures um and i think um that's maybe where the change can come from or you know as you said there is a kind of amalgamation between 
the young and the old so that the young show us how to go forward and i think that's probably you know where most change will come from you know this sort of amalgamation between young and old and uh slow and fast you know us being the slow of course um, <laughs> yeah absolutely um, you know the, you know there is a potential for change there you know uh, profound change but it needs you know it does need um uh acceptance from from all stakeholders that's the thing isn't it and that's so difficult because everyone is coming at it from their own angle, obviously. Um, I mean, the integrated care systems that are being set up, the idea was to try and get primary and secondary care and community care working together to think about their local population. Um, it's, but, but with Where all these the barriers? things... Where are the barriers in that? The, the barriers are, um, I guess, setting up anything new. Uh, you are getting to know your teams and, and a lot of it is actually understanding what the other people are seeing and doing and where they're coming from. So it's that those lines of communication have to be open and understand well, what, what are your issues? What are our issues? What are the patient's needs? And how do we amalgamate those to come to some sort of um, kind of halfway house? And also, I think the issue is needs rather than wants, and that's the difficult bit. There's a lot of wants that we cannot fulfill in the NHS as it stands with the funding. And we have to prioritize need. The people who need it need to get the care. And how do we ascertain that need? Um, how do we make it fair that everyone can tell us what they need and then we can prioritize that? Because it doesn't always work that way. It's, uh, it's sometimes the people that shout the loudest may get, um, care quicker or um, you know easier than those who don't actually shout the loudest and, and remain in the background till it's absolutely needed and so there is a bit of a, a problem with how we we get that 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 going um and and i think the service was set up as as we said in the 1940s for a different population and different needs and that needs to be kind of really looked at as to what is the nhs able to cover you know what are we able to deliver um, as part of uh, social care and health care. Is it reasonable to deliver all services to everyone? Or do we need to look at what are the core things we need to deliver and that everyone should have? And then what things can be added on as extras? Uh, you know, and I don't want anything privatised. I think we have got an amazing system and, and to be able to access it regardless of who you are, where you're from, how much money you have, is really great it levels the playing field um and and helps the economy i think because you don't have to worry about you know what you're earning you can still get yourself treated and get back to work and look after your family but there is a there is a threshold that that we will have to think about i think yeah. to keep the service running um that those are the difficult conversations yeah. and i'm not sure that that leadership want to have those necessarily because they are difficult conversations and not everyone likes what they hear. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it does mean that, that there may be a, uh, a need for change in leadership and hence, you know, them not having that conversation um, because it does take, I'll go back to courage again, it, 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 it does take yeah. a courageous person to make those difficult decisions because you're going against essentially um, an old culture that, that we've all take it, uh, taken for granted and changing culture you know a grand you know taking for granted culture um is actually quite difficult to change um and it does take a real pioneer 
person uh you know to change that culture but i think you know having these discussions are really important and actually asking those difficult questions and then allowing maybe the private sector to come up with solutions to deal with these uh, problems because i'm sure there's lots of very you know uh, efficient ways of delivering needs healthcare in a in a in a very cheap and efficient way uh, you know particularly with the technology that we have um, I mean, if Elon Musk can can you know go to space, I'm sure he can. I'm sure we can find a way of delivering really effective, cheap, um, and and um, you know easy healthcare to a very large population. Um, and you know, as you said, people are clued up now. You know, you don't need to explain much to them. You, know, you just need to guide them in the right direction. I think that's where. I mean, it's a bit like coaching, really. You know, coaching is really about facilitating. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe that's where, you know, the future of healthcare is. It's sort of, you know, going down the, um, you know, sort of the coaching sphere of facilitation. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right about um, things like technology and innovation. I mean, what COVID has taught us, I mean, the general practice very quickly went digital from, I mean, there was a planned digital rollout supposed to happen April last year, and it's amazing. And a lot of people were a bit worried about it, but actually because of COVID, it sort of all happened ASAP. Within a week or two, everyone had to go digital. Um, and now obviously there's a call to go back to face-to-face. -face. And actually what, what a lot of GPs are saying is that the digital change has allowed us to deal with the numbers of patients that we would ordinarily not have been able to deal with yeah. and and actually if we go back to seeing everyone face to face on demand the number that we can see will go down and actually there'll be more people dissatisfied with the service um i mean we're seeing speaking and seeing on videos and face to face more than we've ever done in total appointments wise than ever before even pre-pandemic um, and there's a real shortage of, of GPs and doctors generally. So I, I mean, why is there this kind of disrespect towards GPs um, judgment and opinion about, you know, what what's needed for their for their patients and um, patients health? I think I think we were talking about the media and sort of kind of the journalism that sort of fires up um, kind of people's anxieties and neuroses. Um, and I think that that has been a major part of it you know if we had support um from the government and from the media that actually uh, you know we we're doing a good job and lots of our patients have fed back to us that we're doing a great job and they love having the phone consultations because they can be at work either working from home or somewhere else we can speak to them we can do a video consult if needed and then if we think they need to be seen we can either see them on the day if it's urgent or we can bring them in on a different day. And, and it's fantastic, but a large proportion, we've been able to deal with them over the phone and in a very good way with all the skills that we already have. Um, and so and, and our, the survey that came back recently, GP surveys, patient um, satisfaction was extremely high. Our practice got something like 95%. And that kind of stuff isn't back in the media. You know, that actually... Um, look at this, look at what we've managed to do. And I think the rhetoric that comes out is we're sitting at home, saving our own um, sort of backsides because we don't want to see patients with COVID. And that's all it is. And actually, we're not. We're in work. We're, we're, we're physically going to work, um, but we're doing a mixture of different types of consultations. Um, 
and we're seeing and dealing with more patients than ever before. And so I think the problem is it's a bit like the fuel crisis, that if you whip up enough frenzy, then there will be enough people that will agree with you. But that doesn't mean that that's the majority of patients um, that agree with them. Um, and so I think it's, it's an interesting thing about why, why people in the NHS are treated this way, because I think we're very visible and we're the first port of call for most patients. So we're seen a lot. So, you know, it's easy. It's a bit like, you know, when you go home, uh, the person that you take out most of your stress on is your spouse because they're there and they're always going to be with you and they're never going to leave you. So, you know, potentially, but so, so, you know, they're, they're a safe space. And I think sometimes for a lot of uh, the country, the GP is a safe space. We've always been there. We're here now. We'll always be there. So we're the first person they see um, and possibly the last person they see. Um, so it's very easy to use us as a, as a, um, a, a scapegoat. And, and actually, the reality is that a lot of our patients are extremely happy with the service. Um, and I think we're seeing something like 50%, between 50 and 60% of patients face-to-face. Uh, and pre-pandemic, it was 80%. But we are seeing a lot more patients overall in the sense that we are seeing and dealing with a lot more patients. So I think the service is, is robust. However, we don't have enough GPs. So we do need to work out how are we going to sustain this service. As we said, the NHS, you know, we're free at the point of call. Whether you see us once a year or you see us 20 times a year, we are paid the same amount of money for that, that, that patient. So actually, it's a fantastic value for money service. You, you know, not many countries have that. Um, so, yeah, very sad that the media portray us as they do. But as GPs, we all know our own patients always give us, you know, feedback um, and the feedback is always good. So and if it wasn't good, then we tweak the service till we get, you know, we get the, the service that patients need in our locality. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very disheartening. And as we were saying, you know, I stopped reading kind of things because in the press, because it's actually very demoralizing for, for our team and we don't want to read that kind of stuff. It, it doesn't help us do our job better, really, at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, what 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 kind of changes do you want to see? I mean, do you, do you want to see this change in terms of um, the general media or have you just accepted that this will always be the case and as long as you treat your patients well, it's, it's fine? Um, I think there is, you know, there's quite, there's a lot of Facebook groups for GPs and, and, yeah. and, we, we all get really, really cross about this because it, it does demoralize um, you know, us on a day to day. But I think it's not healthy being, being the head of the GP school and seeing GP trainees come up. It's not healthy for our upcoming GPs to be seeing this kind of negative portrayal. And we very, very clearly say to them, you, know, you need to actually not read that kind of social media stuff and, and try not to read the press but obviously the younger generation that is part, part and parcel of their life that is how they communicate with each other so it's very difficult for them to completely take away uh, the information coming from the media on social media um, and that's very demoralizing to for, for people to see that maybe general practice isn't what they thought it was or that's what they're seeing in the media and actually we're trying to say to them it is good. It's great. Obviously, there's always ups and downs, as there is with any job. But but generally, you know, you do your job well. Your patients will always feed back to you, um, and it's a very satisfying job. Um, and and it's one of the jobs where you can do so many different things um, with general practice. It's a great job for longevity in your in your career. I think 
if you want to do 40 or 50 years, general practice is a great way to do it because um, you can add so many things to your portfolio. But it's not great for our young doctors to be seeing such negative um, kind of information about them um, in social you know, so media. I mean, there aren't any sort of pressure groups or sort of political uh, activism that that's there to support GPs and, and GPs uh, interests. Um, there are quite a few groups, I think, that have been set up. I mean, there's some Facebook groups, um, sort of like Resilient GP, GP Survival, um, DA UK, uh, that, are, that are doing great work in, in pushing um, for all doctors, actually, but some of the groups are specifically for GPs to try and push back, um, you know, when we get such negative um, media. Um, but I, I don't think it's... You know, this is coming from top down and almost you need something from top down supporting us. Um, we will do what we can to push back. But but at the end of the day, we are doing a day job as well. So it's, you know, it's a difficult thing. Um, keep doing that unless you have activists that do it full time. And we haven't got enough GPs, so GPs need to do the work. Um, so, you know, top down needs to be that actually we are doing a lot of work. We are supporting our patients. They're not hiding. Uh, we're trying to do the most efficient thing we can to see as many people as we can and deliver that service, you know. So it's like you said, it's leadership at the top. It's, you know, what are what are they telling the public at the top? You know, what, you know, is there honesty um, in, in, in what they say? And, and often we've seen that's not really the case often. So that's really not great for GPs at the moment and that's why we kind of decided to go okay we'll do what we can but then we've just got to get on with our job you know um, yeah. we can't be ingrained in this because it's not great for for us to but feel it's very like draining. That. yeah it's extremely draining um so yeah we choose sometimes to ignore that bit of information through the media really yeah yeah and and sort of like going forward you know we do have um uh, a shortage of GPs I mean, do you see it sort of changing or, or do you see it getting worse? I mean, you know, given that you've got your finger on the pulse, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, we are training more GPs than ever before. Mm. The numbers have gone up exponentially over the last three years. Um, you know, we've got funding to get more GPs into GP training. Um, so that's been great. The trouble is there's a mismatch between how many people are going into G GP training and then how many people are coming out the other end and actively working. Yeah. And I think sustaining full-time jobs in general practice uh, with potentially 10 hour days is really quite difficult. Um, and I think a lot of the younger generation are saying, actually, I can't sustain that level of working. I can't do a five day job with 10 hour days. That's just not reasonable for me to be able to do that. So they're opting to do less days. So when people say I'm a part-time GP, I think people think that as a part-time office job, um, and it's not. A GP days are 10 hour days. You know, we start at eight, we finish at 6.30, you're on call. A lot of people are staying later than that to do paperwork um, and, and you know, follow up on stuff. So, you know, the days are extremely long. So. Being a part-time GP might actually mean if you work three days, you're working between, you know, you're working 30 to 40 hours a week, uh, which, you know, in the scheme of things, isn't a part-time job. So I think 
we have to look at what that looks like for young people. You know, that's really, really difficult. They, they're bringing up families. They're, they're trying to pay off mortgages, which are, you know, cost of living is going up. It's a difficult scenario. So it's, 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 it's how do we make the job appealing for, for doctors to continue working in it and sustain it for, you know, 20 to 30 years. Uh, so not only are people not doing full-time work, at the other end of the scale, people are retiring early because they're burning out and they cannot sustain the workload. So we're losing at both ends. And that's the bit that I can't do in the GP school um, and we can't do as deaneries and regions. That is something that's got to come from the top. You know, that, that's coming from the government, NHS England. How do we, you know, got to look at this? How do we stop this leakage of people, uh, really well-qualified, bright, you know, people that we've spent lots of money on um, training them and they've spent lots of money themselves training. We don't want to lose them, you know, we want to keep them. So I think there needs to be, it's, it's that word again, bravery and courage to think about how we stop the loss. And, and it's not just in general practice. I think it's happening around specialities. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've so got yeah. a massive shortage of um, ophthalmologists and, you know, the Royal College yeah. of Ophthalmologists have been, um, what's the word, badgering the government for more support and more funding and more, uh, infrastructure to allow us to train more ophthalmologists because we we were you know we're very short and and the population's getting older and and and, and sicker yeah so you know Absolutely. it is a um uh you know all specialties as you mentioned before um, yeah and we are recruiting obviously we're recruiting historically we've always had doctors um come from other countries and, and train um you came to this country when you were young i came to this country when i was young people are coming after medical school before medical school you know at different times of their their lives um and there's a slight worry that we're draining you know the brightest from other countries uh what, what uh, is that right um uh, and then and then lots of people you know might train here and go back home which is also right you know um how do we how do we match that up as well you know we haven't got we don't seem to have got the the mix correct in terms of how do we sustain this long term and make it something that's 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 sustainable um so tricky um lots and lots of tricky um decisions to be yeah. made in leadership um, I, you know, I think for me, because because I'm a bit of a, um, I'm interested in personality and and sort of the psychoanalytical part of of, uh, of existence. And I think the more you know about yourself, the more likely you are to make a better informed decision about what you want to do. And I think that's something I'd like to see, kind of so to speak, educated more within, uh, you know, within mainstream education. You know, at a younger age and. I think free flow of information and free flow of labor and free flow of, of, of um, uh, economic migration should be actually open to all. And I thought, okay, you know, we, 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 we do need to have immigration laws and, 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 and um, procedure and so on, because you do want to uh, keep a control of populations and resources and so on. I mean, I understand that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, more 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 people whoever wants to come absolutely yeah. come in you know it's i mean it's done wonders for me i mean if i stayed in iraq uh mm. you know back in the 70s you know I, I wouldn't have got the opportunities that i would have got here and i think it's absolutely awesome that that that, that my dad took the courageous step of 
of coming here and uprooting his family and you know starting fresh so to speak um but yeah I think... and my family were also immigrants um you know came as doctors in the 70s so um you know it, this is not a new thing it's been going on for many many years i mean a large proportion of the nhs has always been um you know uh people who have um, emigrated, you know, and, and come here for, like you said, better opportunities. Uh, you know, the skills offered may have been um, better for them, um, you know, and education. So um, something they may not have, they may or may not have had in their home country. So absolutely, I wouldn't be here either if it wasn't for that. So I think, you know, we are of the caring type, you know, which is yeah. what I'm trying to say, you know, is, is that our personalities per se, um, attract towards these kind of professions and I think um, maybe that's something that we can think about in, in, in terms of keeping uh, our workforce sustainable is that you know maybe this is what you're about <laughs> rather than the job itself. Yeah, I mean, I, you talked about coaching and facilitation. I've always I've always maintained that coaching should be available. Um, actually to to most doctors I mean in most private corporations you wouldn't get to the level that you get to in medicine without having some coaching and mentoring um, and and it's amazing that 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 hasn't happened over the years it's starting to happen now um, uh, CCGs and PCNs have been setting up um, and training hubs and have been setting up coaching and mentoring for doctors and it's available um, so you know we we actively ask people to go you know if you're struggling or you're you're in a point of your career where you need to just figure out go and get it it will be useful for you to just have some time and reflection to think about what's going on and it will stop you burning out I think that's the key if you go early enough it will help you think about what you need to do before you get to that point of falling off the cliff as it were um, so yeah it certainly helped me having had coaching myself but being a coach I hope I'm helping some of those doctors um, think about what works for them and, and and help them stay in medicine a little bit, but but not go out altogether, but but help them think about what that looks like for them, you know, what's healthy for them, uh, what will work for them, you know, if they want to keep working till they're 60, 65, what, what's the best way to do that so you remain fit and well and enjoying your roles and your job. So it's so important rather than just being on this treadmill um, and just, just running. Um, and then falling off it because it's gone a little bit too fast. That's my kind of um, metaphor, really. And 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 that that's what used to happen, and it still does for some people, uh, which is a bit sad. So yeah, I'm a proponent of coaching and mentoring, and I'm I'm very keen that people go and do that if you're at that stage where you're unsure of what what you're doing, where you're going, whether you're well enough to do things, uh, and if your physical and mental health is suffering, it's definitely one of those things to go and do. I think. And and when when was the first time you saw a coach or you were exposed to the you know to the coaching phenomenon? Yeah. So interestingly, um, in in the as as educators, um, we had something called an experienced trainers course, which you were encouraged to go to, maybe every three years or so to sort of develop your skills further. You know, after you've been training for a while, um, and and the course had changed over many years. And when I when I went on the course, it then started being run by a coach in the support and well-being service um, and she was running it and, and the way she ran it is she had role play and you she taught you how to do sort of mini coaching sessions and effectively you were coaching trainees in need of support so trainees that were going through difficult times whether at work or home and she taught us how to coach our trainees through that so rather than giving them solutions and 
telling them what to do. It was helping them come to the realization themselves about what they need to do to help themselves. And obviously asking those coaching questions, a little bit of a challenge. And, and we had to practice on each other and on the role player and, um, and feedback to each other and video ourselves doing the coaching. So it was all a bit scary, but also I came out of that course. I think that was back in, I don't know, maybe 2015, 2014 and thought, oh my God, this is such a good way of doing this. This is so much better than um, telling people what to do. This, this gets people thinking about it for themselves. Um, and I loved it. And I thought at some point I'm going to do a coaching course. And then I went and did a mentoring course for the NHS and uh, mentored a few doctors. Um, and that was fantastic. And then I was going through a crisis about where I wanted to go next and, and um, kind of, you know, do I want to stay in medicine in general practice? Do I want to do something else? And I thought, do you know what? I need to go and see a coach myself to work through this. So I went and saw a coach myself and had about four sessions with a coach. And it was the best thing I ever did. It sort of clarified in my head some of my behaviors and why I was doing them and how, how I was jeopardizing myself before I even did something. I was talking myself out of doing things um, because of, you know, stress or anxieties that I had. Neuroses, I love the word, neuroses about what I thought would happen. Um, and, and I realized it worked for me. So I said, if it works for me, this will work for other people. Um, I'm pretty sure. And, and, and I'm sure doctors go through it even more because we have such busy lives. We have got very um, important jobs in the sense that very, very um, busy jobs, but also with a lot of responsibility. And we worry about these things all the time. Um, but we also worry about how long we're going to be able to sustain that work and you know, what we're going to do when we get into our late 50s or 60s, you know, what, what's going to happen. Um, so I decided to go on a coach, coaching course and I did my ILM5 um, coaching and mentoring course at Oxford Brooks. Um, and had a fantastic uh, group of supervisors there and a group of people that I still keep in touch with, uh, my peers and colleagues. And since then, I've used coaching in absolutely everything I do. I've used it with patients. I've used it with colleagues. I use it in my head of school role when I'm doing appraisals. And it works. You know, that, that method um, of, of getting people to take a bit of time out and reflect and, and, and do it, it works. So... For me, it's the way forward. And I still do some private coaching um, and, and I've had a few doctors and, and non-doctors as well, but professional people that I've helped kind of with their crises as well. And I just I just love it. I'm a proponent of it. It works on me. I've had feedback. It works on others. And, and it's almost like a it's a life skill to me almost. Um, I've used it on my family. <laughs> I've used it on my children. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. But yeah i, I mean as they say you know uh, the most important thing is not the answer it's the question you know it's all about absolutely. the question yeah absolutely um and it's a safe space where you can ask the questions challenge someone a little bit without them feeling worried about it and 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 it's their space you know it's their time um so and that's the the main feedback i get is i never have time like an hour to just sit and reflect on my life and think about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And the very fact that you give them that space to do that is, is, is in itself the therapeutic element sometimes, um, I find. Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole, um, I mean, it is an intimate relationship and, and um, you know, we do heal in these relationships. Um, 
but we don't know why it works. I mean, I don't know why it works. I mean, you know, there is no science behind this, but it, you know, it's, it's, uh, and it's difficult, you know, I've worked in the therapeutic space, the psychotherapeutic space for some time. And, and um, it's difficult to explain it scientifically, you know, because the psychometric tests um, are kind of giving a scientific flavor to it, but it's not, there's not much uh, empirical science there. <laughs> um, so it, it, it doesn't really talk to the, to the empirical, you know, the absolute empirical science, uh, scientist, um, which is why some people kind of treat it a bit, hmm, you know, maybe that's reluctance why, you know, not all doctors, you know, get into this thing about coaching i mean i i i i remember when i was um uh sort of promoting my service and coaching and i got all kinds of funny <laughs> you know coaching no way is like oh, not for me thank you very much it was it was quite interesting maybe it's a surgeon thing maybe it's a I, I, I think you're right thing. if you're if you're a scientist and and, and an uber scientist if you're a surgeon obviously everything is very evidence-based it has to be by its nature hasn't it um, and I think that's why doctors, because everything is so scientific and, and our opinion has to be based on scientific evidence, hasn't it? Um, however, as GPs, I think maybe there's a little bit, uh, we're a little bit maybe more open to it because a lot of what we do is based on our intuition and our gut and we know that person and we know there's something not quite right, but you know, it, you know we, we, we act and then we look back and go, then now I know why, why that happened. But at the time, there's no scientific reason sometimes why you feel some way about something. Um, and so it, it's that, that it is based on your experience and it's based on what you've seen before and how you've seen it. But in the moment, it feels very emotional. Something is not quite right with this patient and I must do X, Y, Z, but you cannot pinpoint the evidence behind that. Everything might be normal. Their OBS might be normal. They might seem normal, but, but in context of that person, you know they're not compared to what they were. So that's why I think um, a few GPs, lots of GPs go into coaching or use coaching. And I think we're maybe a bit tuned into that bit. Yeah. But I agree, a lot of people would say, hmm, what's the evidence behind coaching? And, and particularly if you say life coach, everyone just recoils in horror because it's sort of, oh my Lord, what does that mean? And, and I recoiled in horror when someone said, that's what I was. <laughs> uh, and I still quite haven't worked out what kind of coach I am and I, I, I sort of still resisted calling myself any specific kind of coach because yeah. there's connotations yeah. to what you what you call yourself I think um, and it's interesting isn't it people's reactions to that particularly medics I think um, yeah. sort of, I mean that's going to change though you know because yeah. you know I mean if the head of the GP school is, is doing coaching I think that's a you know that's a great sign of uh, the you know the change of times and it gives other people permission to go into that sphere and at the same time, you know, be empirical uh, and scientific. So, you know, you know, you are sort yeah. of being the pioneer in, in, in bringing the soft and the hard together. <laughs> that's a good way of looking at it. And I think I think that's what we do as GPs the best. You know, we bring yeah. we bring all the hard evidence. You know, I need to check your chest and I need to do your oxygen stats. But the softer skills are. I understand why you're feeling that way or you didn't feel that way two days ago you know what's going on in the background what else is causing you to feel unwell so I think it is it's 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 part of our role you know we're human beings with emotions uh, as well as having a brain that understands logic 
So the two aren't completely separate. They always have to combine, don't they? And, and work out what is important and when. Um, yeah, I, and I, I think I'm having hoping... that sort of, sorry, I mean, ha having that integrated yeah. structure is, is really important. We've got the cognitive yeah. structures, which, you know, yeah. which is very empirical, but then we've got the, you know, hippocampus, which is, you yeah. know, very archaic and, and very powerful yeah. and it can shut off all of the, you know, cognitive abilities very quickly. So I think we shouldn't uh, dismiss the soft, softness no. of our skills uh, at all, because I, I think that's much more powerful than the hard skills. And I think they, you know, they do come first. And and this coming from a surgeon, so you know, that's not too bad. <laughs> that's very good. <laughs> uh, you're a surgeon who's has had a different kind of uh, trajectory, though. So, well, I mean, I think um, I've I've got a strong ego. I'm quite narcissistic, and I think that's why I became a surgeon. But then I realised that 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 I'm not that, and I'm kind of retracting back from my. Uh, 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 you know, hard empirical existence and becoming more more myself, which is this sort of soft, fluffy thing, um, <laughs> but trying to act hard sort of thing. Uh, but um, there is something about um, you are made to be something, aren't you? Yeah, That's yeah, the yeah. other bit. Um, is that you know part of applying for medical school and going through the process and being a surgeon? You know, the long, long. Um, you know kind of years that you have to do that you, yeah. you have to form your hard core so that you can get through all the difficulties that actually medicine throws at you um, and it's I think when you're older you're a bit wiser and you can look back and and, and reflect and 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 be able to soften those things because you've been through that bit it's very difficult yeah. when you're going through it though isn't it to well, I mean, I stopped thinking about what other people think, so to speak. Really. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's what time has allowed me to sort of realise is that, you know, it's actually okay what they think. And, you know, what's more important is what I think about myself rather than what other people think about me. And that's such a relief, isn't it, when you come to that realisation that, oh, well, <laughs> it doesn't matter what they say. I know what I want to do and want to say and how I am. And, and so you may not agree with me, and that's okay as well. Um, we all have our opinions. Um, as long as your opinion of yourself is robust um, and you've got that self-confidence, self-esteem. That, that, I mean, that as long as it's not a lie, I think that's really important. I mean, yeah. you know, you may not actually know who you are and what you are and sort of the truth, so to speak. But I think what's yeah. really damaging is, 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 is that you lie to yourself and, you know, who you are and who you think you are and we all know when we lie I, just, I mean we can't tell when other people lie I mean that's no one can tell what other people you know when, no. when they're lying but most people can tell when they lie to themselves you know they get that horrible feeling inside and that's when you need to act and, and luckily for us as human beings we are beings of action and movement and I think you know there's a lot of wisdom in that and if we can you know bring the whole this you know this whole process of of, of movement and action into into healthcare and you know exercise or whatever you want to call it um i think it will benefit a lot of people rather than reaching for the first you know nice approved uh therapy that uh is 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 currently being funded by all the uh 
the pharmaceutical companies anyway let's not get too political here i mean <laughs> you know you know we could have another session about that and and also yeah. i mean you know we didn't talk about racism which is a big thing and you know it's 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 got a great flavor now and it's become very sexy and sort of very what you know <laughs> sort of everyone can talk about it and and sort of have a great opinion and and and, and so on uh, maybe for another session we can sit down and, and just talk about that for about an hour because that'll be quite interesting um uh yeah that would be really interesting um so let's finish up by by sort of asking you this sort of question i ask all people really at the end of the podcast you know uh what are the three sort of top tips you would uh, uh tell yourself who's about to start medical school in uh you were in cardiff wasn't it sort of Medical school. I was in Cardiff. Yeah, this was ninety. What was it? Ninety. So I finished in nineteen ninety seven. A long oh, well, time yes. ago now. Yes. So so nineteen ninety two you started. I, I imagine. Yeah. So you, so you're about to start medical school. You're about to go to Cardiff. Uh, what would you advise your your younger self? What are the three top things you would you tell yourself? In a uh, in a coaching three... way, of course. In, yeah, in a coaching, coaching way. <laughs> Um, the three top things I would tell myself is failure is not the end of the road. Um, I didn't do, I got into medical school, but I, I wasn't the best student, let's put it that way. Um, and, and I learned from my failures. So failure, um, is, is nothing to be scared of. Um, it's inevitable. Everyone will have some failures. And I think learn from them and move on, I think would be one of the tips really. Um, my second tip is try and enjoy your life. Um, I mean, I certainly enjoyed medical school. I'd only come into the country a couple of years prior to it. So I made long lasting friends. Um, I, I felt like I integrated into the country, which prior to that, I didn't feel I had. Um, while still keeping my own culture, I felt like I, I felt more like I belonged. Um, <clears throat> so that's my second tip is that enjoy the time. You never get that time back again. And with the wisdom of old age, I can say that was, you know, one of the best times of my lives. And I really enjoyed myself. So that's my second tip. I think my third tip is, is sort of, and I try and live my life a little bit like that, is that don't put off things um, for the future or things that you might be able to do today for, for a future day, because absolutely life is short. And if COVID has taught us anything, is that it's extremely unpredictable. Um, and I don't leave things till I retire or I'll travel there one day when I when, you know, when my kids have left or whatever. I try and do what I can myself with my family and take everyone with me and, and, and try and do the things I enjoy because absolutely life is short. And, and I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after. So I try and live my life the way I want to live it rather than it being dictated by anyone else. That's beautiful. <laughs> It's been absolutely awesome speaking to you and and uh, we should do another session about just talking about racism. I think that'll be quite interesting. I think we will. <laughs> um, and uh, see you in the uh, in the uh, social media world, I guess. Yes, I guess. Hopefully not as not too much, though. <laughs> not too toxic. Keep our mental health. Yeah, exactly. But it was All lovely right. to talk to you, Heather. Take care. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye.